are entering the Freedom Hut. Has the radical left seized control of the Democratic Party? Nancy Pelosi's inability to control the blowback over the Ilhan Omar comments seems to suggest, yes, they have lost control. Plus, we've got more updates from the crisis that is getting worse at the border. And we are on sentencing watch for Paul Manafort. Will we know how long he has to go away? And why is the country not seeing why the Democrats are acting crazy on this? We've got that and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's like, I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Multiple U.S. officials with direct knowledge of the briefings tell CNN that classified documents on Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. election presented last week to President Obama and to President-elect Trump included allegations that Russian operatives claimed to have compromising personal and financial information about Mr. Trump. Wrong. This sort of dossier of alleged dirt that the Russians allegedly say they allegedly have on Donald Trump. Alleged dirt that they allegedly use to allegedly cultivate him is basically a Russian asset. Wrong. You get the person's phone records. Here they see these calls to the block number. Uh, and now there seems to be good evidence that that was probably President Trump. Wrong. We begin uh, with a new report that Paul Manafort, the president's former campaign chairman, paid secret visits, multiple ones, to Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Wrong. President Trump directed his attorney to lie to Congress. Wrong. Hallie, after two years and interviewing more than 200 witnesses, the Senate Intelligence Committee has not uncovered any direct evidence of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Just want to remind you how much the media gets it wrong on the other side. How many of those have we had to do here on this show? Where I say, oh, yeah, you know that crazy story that I told you about that was amazing and you all wanted to hear? Turns out I totally made it up. Or I was totally wrong. My source, you know, just had no idea what he was talking about. I think that's never happened on the show. And yet, how many times has the lib media gotten it so, so wrong on Russia collusion. Oh my, but they have no self-awareness. They do not care how often they are wrong because they are activists, my friends. They are not journalists. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show again. Great to have you here. I'll be up in New York tomorrow, so that'll be kind of fun. So we'll be doing the show from the Freedom Hut NYC. Today, I'm deep in the swamp, though. We've been on Manafort watch here. Everybody all uh, on the edge of their seat to find out whether a 70-year-old man is going to go to prison for a few decades for underpaying his taxes and lying about it. All this other stuff, Russia, Russia, no, no, has nothing. None of his charges have anything to do with Russia collusion, with the election, nothing. He's just getting crushed by the federal bureaucracy because he had the uh, uh, the bad sense, I guess, to work with President Trump and to lie to the government and, and break some laws, which is a bad thing. We'll talk more later this hour about the obvious glee with which many on the left, many Democrats are awaiting Paul Manafort's sentencing. And you have to say to yourself, why would anyone celebrate this? I mean, he's a he's a a a senior citizen who is now going to die in a cell 
because he didn't pay enough taxes. I'm sure he paid a lot of taxes, but he didn't pay enough taxes. And he's lied about it to the government. All the other stuff, wire fraud, bank fraud, that's just all the process of trying to hide the funds. So don't don't let them, you know, the federal federal counts, they always throw all this stuff, you know, illegal usage of a pen in the commission of the IRS defrauding and all this sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, there you have it. I have to say, I am um, I'm annoyed at what's going on there, but we don't yet have the we don't yet have the answer as to whether or not it will be a particularly harsh sentence in the guidelines. We'll have to see. It might not be till tomorrow. Mike will be watching that for us. So uh, then that brings me to what happened this week. This big story of anti-Semitism and Ilhan Omar and what it tells us, because I, I know I, we already know this, right? Ilhan Omar is an anti-Semite and the Democrats have no standards when it comes to policing their own. Uh, but it tells us something interesting about the Democrat Party that we have to deal with now, the Democrat Party that's on the other side of the political table. I mean, here, here's Pelosi making some excuses. Play 13. It's up to her to explain, uh, but I do not believe that she understood the full weight of the words. When you cross that threshold into Congress, your words weigh much more than when you're shouting at somebody outside. And uh, I feel confident that her words were not based on any anti-Semitic attitude, but that she didn't have a full appreciation of how they landed on other people where this, these words have a history and a cultural impact that may have been unknown to her. Ah, uh, so this is Pelosi's version of she's sorry if maybe some people were offended by her words. That's not the same, though, as she's sorry. That's trying to find some lesser way of sort of apologizing. You know, I'm sorry if some people were offended by what I said. That's not I'm sorry for what I said. It's wrong. And Pelosi now stepping ahead of Omar. There's supposed to be this resolution that they're going to condemn bigotry and, and it was supposed to be anti-Semitism. First of all, this whole congressional resolution thing is, is a joke. Well, what does this even mean? Who cares? I mean, it's meaningless. It's no different. I mean, there are people that make a big deal of this. It's meaningless because they're going to water this down into nothing. They're saying that it's now anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, racism, sexism, all isms. You know, all isms matter is what they're saying. You will recall back when Black Lives Matter was a major movement. If you said all lives matter, the left got very upset about that and said that you are delegitimizing the pain of this specific group within and, and the movement around it by bringing up other people. And I just think it's interesting that whether you agree with that excuse or not, and, and I don't for a whole bunch of reasons, but you know, or rather that assessment of it, not excuse, uh, that's what they're doing now. That's what the Democrats are. So they're saying, well, maybe Ilan Omar is an anti-Semite, but there's a lot of bad stuff out there. So let's just all go on the record. We're against bad stuff. Thanks, Democrats. So brave. Reminds me of, uh, you know, Bobby Newport, who's the really bad candidate in Parks and Rec. Great show. You start at season two. Don't watch season one. Start at season two. You'll thank me later. Watch it through. Ron Swanson's one of the best characters on TV of all time. But Bobby Newport at some point said something like, you know, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, I love people and I love the people in this town and I'm not afraid to say it. You know, it's like, yeah, you go. You brave man, you. 
Um, and then you got the other side of this where you got Debbie Dingell, for example, who's just saying that this is a Republican's pounce situation. Play 14. I don't think it took that long to reach unity. There was a lot of discussion and a lot of members of this caucus had very strong feelings about what they're seeing. You have to realize that sometimes the other party, and I have a great deal of respect for them, is trying to do gotcha moments. I don't think you play gotcha moments with fear and hatred and bigotry. I think we find a way to remember that we're not Republicans or Democrats, that we're Americans, and we stand up against hatred against anybody. So they're trying to do, some people, not all of them, we're trying to do a gotcha moment. A gotcha moment. Republicans pounce. Here's what's really happened this week. Pelosi lost control of the party. The left now, the the hard left, the real left, the socialist left runs the Democratic Party. We're going to talk more about this in just a moment. Stay with me. I do have a great fear that in the long run, we may not make it. And uh, I hate to say that. And the one thing that keeps me from being despairing is, uh, is of course, we don't know. There's so many things we can't possibly know. And so we, we may make it. But I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it. That was Dr. Thomas Sowell again. One, one of the great American minds on economics, on politics, on a whole lot of things. And someone who I wish would get more attention. And, and you know, I, I want people, this is one of my frustrations with conservatism right now, folks. I will just say it to you. I will share it with you. And I know that it's not cool and it's not going to get me a lot of retweets and follows and podcast downloads and all that stuff. But I do wish that while we fight now as conservatives and we fight in the public square and we, we take the arguments to the enemy, we call them fake news when they deserve it, which they often do. I also would like conservatism to still maintain, you know, reading Hayek, reading Dr. Thomas Sowell, reading Milton Friedman and uh, having a, an understanding and an appreciation for some of them, you know, Edmund Burke and, I mean, you know, go down the list, all of these great philosophers. And of course, the the America, the the geniuses behind the American founding and, you know, Jefferson. And I just wish that that was more a part of our conservative movement right now. It does feel a bit in this era, and I, I'm just being honest, it feels like it's faded away. It's not in vogue right now to go back to the intellectual giants that our movement is built on and to be familiar with their writing and with their arguments. It's just, you know, own the libs is fine as long as you understand why you are trying to own the libs, if that makes sense. And if you want to understand why you should own the libs, uh, you need to read people like Dr. Thomas Sowell. You you, You need to be familiar with the arguments he makes about economics and how that affects politics. But I, but I wanted to play that little soundbite for you because I've been trying to tell you this week that while we have some fun talking about the the idiots on the left right now, uh, while we sh- uh, are going to indulge ourselves a little bit in, in mockery at their expense, as we should, and ridicule is an important political tool too, so it's not just, you know, when I did Bernie Sanders and the billionaires and the billionaires, and all, you know, it's, it's, I'm kidding, but I have a, why are you so mean, Buck? Why are you making fun of Bernie? Um, but it also is a necessary, a necessary thing to to take away this idea that that the other side is beyond mockery, which is a very uh, powerful tool of liberals. This is why they don't make you know they never made fun of Obama on SNL for eight years. They just didn't do it. It just wasn't a thing that was going to happen, right? They 
would make jokes involving him, but they would never make fun of him, really. And the left is very cautious about this um, because satire, ridicule, and mockery are, are potent political weapons. But the, uh, the, you know, the other part of this is that I really would like um, us to understand the seriousness of the threat that we, we face now. Um, I would like us to know that if we don't continue to fight and make the arguments and, and push for what matters and what we know, uh, then we might lose to this side. I mean, Thomas Sowell is saying here, could socialism bring down America? That's the question. He's saying, I have a fear we may not make it. He said, we may, but I, I'm, I, wouldn't, but I wouldn't bet on it. That's what he says. How, how do we fail? We fail with a catastrophic economic collapse in a country that falls into statism and socialism. That's the way I see it. We're not going to, no one's going to invade us. We've got too many nukes and too many Americans with rifles at home who are good shots. It's just not going to happen. Outside is not where the real threat is. Our main threat is from within. That is where we are most vulnerable. And that is where our energy and the fight for the soul and the future of this country has to lie. I have never in my lifetime, certainly, and I haven't been around that long, but I've never been able to say that I'm really concerned that socialism could win and could win soon. We are there right now. The next election, yes, right. It it feels like we are in this position of strength because socialism has such a bad history and there's so much about it to despise. But that's because the economy is good right now. The country is prosperous. We're in a period of relative peace, not true peace, but relative peace. Our biggest problems are the uh, debt that's completely spiraling out of control, a border that is a, a disaster, and uh, healthcare costs that are completely you know, nuts. And the fact that we have socialists telling us the way to make this all better is to put the government in, in charge. Those are our biggest problems. That's, that's what we have to look at right now and, and deal with. And you know, the... On the one hand, we have this very uh, outspoken and an effective messenger in President Trump for robust capitalism and make America great again. And all this, you know, the, the, the slogans are there, the, the optics and the understanding of how to connect with people. I mean, Trump does this incredibly. But we also need to all be in our own way the ideological ground ground forces the shock troops for some of you listening to this show of the truth and the truth is that socialism for this country would be disastrous that the only places in the world where socialism works it works in part because we exist to create a tremendous global economy and a dynamism that filters through the rest of the advanced industrialized world and they also don't have to worry about invasion and 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 imminent military threats because of us so keep that in mind. People say, well, socialism isn't that bad in Sweden or whatever. Well, you know, the only reason you have the Europe you do today is because of us. And Europe is continuing as it is right now, largely because it knows that America is right next door, should it ever be called upon. Um, but this is, uh, this is a, a very dangerous time we're entering. They're going to impeach this president. The left has really seized control of the Democratic Party. I do not think that as an exaggeration. I think that is where we are. I think the left is 
now the ideology of choice for far too many of my contemporaries and millennials. It's, it is a little scary. They don't know what the heck they're talking about. They really believe. They think they sound smart. I mean, leftists in their 20s and 30s, which I'm still technically one of the people in that age bracket, although my gray hairs and my beard are getting longer every day. Uh, leftists in their 20s and 30s, they believe it. They're intelligent when they say the world's going to end in 12 years. We have to act now on climate change. They think that sounds smart. To a normal person who has not been ideologically brainwashed, that is crazy. Absolutely crazy. But this is now standard for the Democrats. And the, the pivot from climate change to socialism because they're really one and the same, but the but the, the messaging pivot is not a hard one to do, especially if you have a particularly bad economic period. And I, you know, I, I, I talked to you on this show about how I worry that the way that Trump loses this this field of Democrats that's coming up against him right now, they're a, they're a bunch of a bunch of losers. They really are. A lot of people that have been propped up by the media. I mean, this Joe Biden thing, everyone acts like Joe Biden's going to be the savior of the Democratic Party. Joe Biden is a mediocrity at best, at best. I don't think that any of them on their own can defeat President Trump on the stage or in terms of their, their agendas and their platforms. I think the American people will still side with Trump. But there is an opportunism that is at the heart of socialism historically. And... Are we right now a society that is cohesive enough? Is America cohesive enough, durable enough, wise enough? Have we prepared enough that there won't be an opening for the radical left to be in charge? Remember, think of the messaging that they've already managed. Democrats are calling themselves socialists, and we're still being told that it's not fair and mean if you call the Democrats socialists. The Democratic Party in America is the party of the of American democratic socialism. It's what they are. But we're still not really allowed to say that somehow. So don't overestimate. I mean, sorry, don't underestimate them. That's what I'm really trying to get at here. Don't underestimate them. Don't misunderestimate them, to borrow from Bush. We'll be right back. What is it they're accused of doing? These two PACs, Justice Democrats and brand new Congress, took in over $3 million. They then paid about a million and a half dollars to an LLC owned by Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff, this fellow Chakrabarti. Now, what was done with that money, we don't know. Chakrabarti says he didn't take any salary, didn't take any profits. But then the question is, what did they do with it? It looks like a shell game in which they spent the money probably to subsidize a number of different candidate campaigns. And that would be major reporting violations and major violations of the amounts that one can spend on campaigns. So we don't know all the facts yet. Uh, there could be an explanation that I don't know, but I've got to tell you, I've been in this business for 25 years. I look at it, it looks like a shell game, and it certainly merits a major investigation by the FEC. And yet Ocasio-Cortez, I'm sure, because of the leftist surge behind her right now, I'm sure she believes that she will be in a position to skate right past this. That the FEC isn't going to really dig into the finance uh, violations, possible finance violations of the most prominent young female politician, period, but minority politician in the United States. 
I, I bet she thinks, and not without cause, that she's pretty much above this and that there's no way that the FEC is going to bring a serious uh, a serious action against her, really look into her, because she's just too important to the left and the outcry against the FEC would be too high. Now, keep in mind that we've been told now as the Russia collusion insanity is hopefully now coming to an end with the Mueller probe. It's not coming to an end overall, but the Mueller probe is at least going to be ending. We've been told that the real way they're going to get Donald Trump, I mean, the way that Donald Trump is finally going to you know, get his just desserts, according to the left, is because of an FEC violation, because he didn't he didn't publicly declare as a campaign expenditure the hush money paid to the porn star. We're supposed to think that that's an impeachable. The Democrats are going to are going to do this. I mean, they're going to impeach this president. Just mark my words. They're going to impeach him. Okay, that's going to happen. And this is going to be a primary thing in their articles of impeachment, this uh, lack of transparency on a campaign finance violation. But notice how that it's enough. And I don't even think that's they're correctly interpreting the statute. I would I think they're wrong because it's a personal expenditure. It's not a purely campaign expenditure. And if it's a personal expenditure, then guess what? You do not have to list it. He couldn't pay campaign money with it. That wouldn't be right. But he didn't do that. He paid personal money, but he didn't report it. But he shouldn't have to report it because not wanting your wife and kids to find out about an allegation of this, whether you think it's true or not, is a personal expenditure, folks. Uh, but the FEC, you see, it's a bureaucracy, and the left weaponizes bureaucracies like the FEC. We, we don't get to do that on our side. Only You'll notice this is a one-way street. The Republicans get crushed by the FEC, but it's laughable to everybody else. It doesn't matter to everybody else. Um, and that's why Ocasio-Cortez is, she's, this is, not, I'm not going to tell you this is going to haunt her or be a problem for her because she'll manage to, She'll manage to get right past this. There's going to be very little interest in holding her to account. And this is what you're going to see with the left. And I just want to note that she's a big fraud about dark money because this is dark money. She's moving money around, lots of it, for a you know, congressional seat. It's a lot of money for a congressional seat. And making sure that people couldn't know who's funding her, what's doing, you know, what's this was all hiding stuff. This is you, you have to remember this. I know many of you know this. Some of you know this probably a lot better than me because you come from some of these countries. But you have to remember that the left, for all of their talk, for all the things that they promise, that would be kind of a good thing, even with all the bad stuff they're doing. But, you know, their talk of getting dark money out of politics, you know, radical transparency, you know, eliminating corruption, that's all lip service. They just want to eliminate that for the other side And by that, I mean, use those phrases as a weapon against their political opponents. They will always indulge in a double standard. The left will always, under the ideology of moral relativism, feel like they're allowed to break the law because they're the good people. You can't break the laws, though. He seemed to be perfectly happy doing whatever he was doing until the FBI occupied his office and he was faced with going to jail. Suddenly he had a conversion experience uh, caused, I think, by the FBI. And uh, what he said last week was a lie. I have no idea between last week and this week which are the real truth, but he clearly is in danger once again of having committed perjury. 
He's talking about Michael Cohen there. That was Newt Gingrich, who is very, very astute on with his analysis of, of all things Trump. Uh, so, so producer Mike, we're still being told that Manafort has been delayed until tomorrow. Correct. Yeah, he just had it up on Fox a little while ago. Um, looks, it's looking like tomorrow now. All right. So, so here's what I here's what I got, and here's here's why I'm bringing up this Cohen thing, and, and now also want to talk to you about Manafort. It is a very troubling thing in this country when one political party, when when one of the two major political ideologies has openly embraced the humiliation and degradation of a fellow American for really very minor crimes, all things considered, you know, process crimes or financial crimes that only affected the state. Now, when I say they're minor, people say, Buck, Cohen is guilty of seven felonies or whatever it is. And, and Manafort is guilty of all these different crimes, too. And OK, but what are the crimes really? Lying, hiding money, being greedy, not paying taxes. Those are the crimes, not stealing from old widows and leaving them penniless, not, you know, raping and murdering. And you know, it's none of that. You know, none of the things we think of when we describe somebody as a as a hardened criminal. This guy's not a bank robber. He's not threatening people physically. He's not. And this is true of, of Cohen and Manafort. Although maybe Cohen tried to play some tough guy stuff. He was like, hey, you know, you better watch out or else. But in general, what we've seen with Michael Cohen is, and this is what Newt was getting at, a person who has just been completely, completely annihilated by the state. You know, he went from desiring a, and I do think he did desire the White House job because I've spoken to people who said that he wanted a White House job. And let's be honest, how would he not? His whole thing was connection to Trump. So he's not going to try to milk that a little bit more. But he went from thinking maybe he's going to be White House chief of staff or senior White House advisor to now going to prison for five years. Is that right? A number of years. I mean, a, a serious prison sentence. Um, and people are cheering this. People are cheering this on. They seem to not have any compassion whatsoever. Now, you can call me a, a softy, and, and on these issues, maybe I am, but I don't cheer for when anyone, uh, any of my fellow Americans uh, has their life ruined, their freedom taken away, uh, their finances shattered, separated from their, their family, separated from the wife and the kids, not going to be able to see them, or at least only through visits, maybe through a plexiglass uh, window or, you know, in the meeting room or however it is at the minimum security prison he's going to go to. Um, I feel badly for somebody who's in that situation. But that's not what you see from the media. You see with the the complete flip of Michael Cohen and smashing him into the ground, there's no trace in the national, you know, national media conversation and, and from the Democrats and from a lot of never Trump Republicans of, Okay, yeah. Is he a scummy guy? Of course he's a scummy guy. Is he a liar? Yes. Is he the worst lawyer in the country with the possible exception of Michael Avenatti? Yes. All of that is true. But he's still a human being and, you know, he's getting he's getting roughed up by the uh, Southern District of New York here. I mean, he's getting he's doing real hard time. And I feel badly for a guy in that situation. And that that brings me then to Oh, and it also reminds me of uh, the very end of 1984, the George Orwell masterpiece, one of the 10 most important works 
I would argue, written in any language in the 20th century, uh, where you all you only you know you are only truly broken by Big Brother and by the the totalitarian state when you are willing to denounce those that you once loved. Then you finally, and that's how the book ends. It's really chilling. That's how you know that they have crushed your spirit when you will now denounce, and this is true of totalitarian regimes. This is why they always want people informing on family members. You know, they want, and I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I'm a patriot, but my family comes before my country. It's just, just the way it is. You know, if the government said, oh, you report on your family members? No, sorry. You know, family is number one. And what they've seen, what you've seen with Michael Cohen is him not just flipping on Trump, but flipping on everything that he was and thought about himself and having to just do this public, it's like he's wearing a horsehair shirt. It's this public humiliation, flagellation. It's it's like the uh, the groveling in the old English sense of having to grovel as a punishment to to crawl on your hands and knees through the streets while people, you know, threw food at you or were locked in the stockade or the stocks, not the stockade, uh, where they would, you know, be able to humiliate you even further. You know, that's what this is. And we shouldn't be that. We shouldn't want to have somebody locked in the stocks in the, in the town square for our amusement. That's not, it's not okay. Especially somebody who didn't do anything that's particularly heinous or bad. And that's why, I mean, this Manafort sentencing that's coming down tomorrow, they keep saying they get all these legal analysts on that say, well, he could face up to 80 years by statute, but based on the sentencing guidelines, it'll probably be more like, and usually you hear that and you think, well, it'll probably be more like five. You know, how long should how long should Paul Manafort, in, in, a, in a fair world, assuming that he makes financial restitution and he pays back what he stole from the government and... How much, how much? How long should Paul Manafort really go to prison? I mean, I'll I'll put this out there for you. I think he should probably do three to five years, something in that range. That that sounds, you know, three. Look, he's he's seventy. He's an older guy. You know, so how long should he get? I mean, I th- I think if you sent Paul Manafort away for three or four years and took all of the ill-gotten gains that he had from his frauds, that seems fair to me. Do you, do you know what they're saying tomorrow the the real range of it now i don't know what it is and we were going to announce it you know on air here if it happened live but it it doesn't look like it's happening today uh they're talking about manafort getting 18 to 25 years in prison folks 18 to 25 years in federal prison for tax fraud and wire fraud and bank fraud that is a that is a long, long time. I mean, it means that he will die in prison. And that's something that all of us should at least feel sad and, and some sympathy. But and I'm not a Paul Manafort fan. I mean, I think he's a sketchy guy. But we as citizens should always, always have a sense of, you know, should this should the state be crushing this person and essentially taking this person's life away? if not killing them, removing life from them, removing their ability to live their lives. Uh, we should always, this This is where I have a more maybe libertarian or perhaps a classical liberal side that comes out. I, it's we, we should question the state putting people away for this long. And we should question why this is happening to an individual like this. And, you know, there was, I didn't get a chance to talk about it earlier this week, but there was a, uh, there was a sentencing or I'm sorry, a, a DOJ memo 
that was about a, a U.S. attorney in Philadelphia bringing charges there. And the U.S. attorney's bringing charges based on use of a gun in a uh, crime of violence affecting interstate commerce. What a lot of folks don't know is that the feds can they can get you for really any violent crime involving a robbery. It can become a federal issue if the feds want to take it. They usually don't. But and Mike, this is in your hometown. This was in Philadelphia. They took this one, though, because a man named Jovan Patterson who was uh, who was initially charged with attempted murder, aggravated assault, robbery, threat of immediate serious injury, possession of a firearm by a prohibited person, possession of a firearm on the street in Philadelphia, a simple assault, recklessly endangering, I mean, a lot of charges because he robbed an Asian-American convenience store owner named Mr. Pong and almost blew his leg off with an AK-47. Robbed this guy's convenience store, and the guy, you know, was trying to comply, and then there was a struggle, and Mr. Pong nearly had his right, nearly had his right leg blown off, and is now confined to a wheelchair for life. His wife and children arrived on the scene as he was rapidly bleeding out on the street, almost died, had to get rushed to the hospital, barely saved him, and and was, uh, and is now in a wheelchair for life. Just shattered his, um, I think it was shattered his femur. Who wants to guess how long the local district attorney in Philadelphia gave the guy who, with an AK-47, shot this husband, father, family, family man, business owner, just trying to make a living for his family, did nothing wrong, and is now in a wheelchair for the rest of his life after being shot through the leg with an Who wants to guess? Three and a half years, folks. Three and a half years. In the U.S. Attorney's Office... Uh, bless them, were so incensed by this. They're like, you know what? We can bring federal charges and we're going to because that's outrageous. And they they went after the district attorney. They wrote in this in this uh, in this uh, this I keep forgetting what you call it memo. In this publication they put out, this is from the Department of Justice. The policies of the district attorney's office are harming minority communities all across the city of Philadelphia And the people who have the right to be the most outraged by these policies are those in the African-American community and the Latino community. Everyone in the city, and I mean everyone, deserves to live in a safe neighborhood. The district attorney calls himself a public defender with power. That is not his job. He's not supposed to be a public defender advocating for defendants. He's supposed to be a prosecutor advocating for victims and protecting you, uh, protecting the community. So U.S. attorney got this one right in Philadelphia. Obviously, the DA got it wrong. But just think about that, folks. Manafort could get 20 years in federal prison. That, that's realistic tomorrow. I don't know. If, I don't know what he's going to get. And the left is going to cheer for this like a bunch of cackling hyenas. He he he. They got Manafort for what? You're going to sleep better at night because they got Manafort. Meanwhile, if you are a guy who, you know, if you're an African-American guy named what's his name again? Jovan Patterson in Philadelphia and you shoot Mr. Pong from uh, originally born in Asia. I forget where here I'm looking at this thing. Uh, Cambodia. And you're Cambodian-American named Pong, and you get your leg almost blown off in a robbery. The guy who almost killed you and has ruined much of your life, he's going to get three years. Three and a half, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's justice, folks. Just remember that. This is our system. I'll be right back. Global Verification Network, the only dual-certified and veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. I know the CEO personally, Mark Buckman. He's a great guy. He's a Navy vet. 
and he really cares about being the best at this when it comes to background investigations and also the most efficient, all done here in the U.S. of A. If you're listening to this and you work in an HR department anywhere in the country or you have your own company, your own employees, and you need background checks done or you need any corporate vetting whatsoever, I really encourage you strongly to go check out my friends at Global Verification Network. You can call them at 877-695-1179. Again, 877-695-1179. Make sure you tell them you heard about them on the Buck Sexton Show. Also, go to mygvn.com. That's their website. Again, mygvn.com. Global Verification Network. Leave no stone unturned. The numbers of border crossings are still at a historic low compared to other times in our nation's history. No, Senator, they're not. We're on pace for over 700,000 crossings this year. Uh, That's closer to historic highs than historic lows. Oh, I'm sorry. You mean a Democrat senator has no idea what the heck he's talking about when it comes to the border? What a shock. We are at uh, the border crossing. We're at a historic low, Blumenthal says. No, you're not, you jerk. We're now, as was pointed out by CBP Commissioner Kevin uh, McKeelnan, we are closer to historic highs. The border right now is as bad as it has ever been, ever, folks. People who say, oh, but Buck, in the... In San Diego in the 90s, they would have, they had a half a million a year crossing that one sector. I say, yeah, that's right. And they deported half that number within the first year. A lot of them were deported within days. Sometimes they would catch people, when, when they, they counted them as illegal crossings, but they'd catch people who would cross illegally and then try to cross back in the same day. So it was the Wild West, but it also was a much more aggressive enforcement time. Because if you were a Mexican caught illegally in San Diego and the government was willing to repatriate you in Mexico in a matter of hours, no big deal. When you're a migrant from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, when you're coming from those countries, they can't because of the non-contiguous country rule, Canada and Mexico being the contiguous states that we have to keep in mind here. They can't just push you back into Mexico and say, not our problem. And because of that, there's this whole separate process, and that process is breaking down. And this is all very Alinsky. I mean, it reminds me of how, you know, you, you look you look at Alinsky's rules for radicals, which nobody talks about on the right anymore, and they really should, because we're entering a time of radical leftism. It's what I've been discussing here today on the show. We are talking about a radical left now, one that is clearly separated from what a majority of the American people think is normal, okay, and, and, and want for the country. But one of their one of their plans was just to go into a uh, a facility and just clog up. I mean, just I didn't mean literally clog up, but go in and, and sit in all the bathroom stalls so nobody can go to the bathroom as a form of protest. You know that sounds like it's not a big deal, but guess what? Over the course of the day, I mean that's going to get a lot of attention. It's going to really slow. It's going to slow down business because people have to use the restroom over the course of the day. So if you go into a government building and you and you flood, I can't, I don't know how else to say it. You flood all the restrooms. You're going to cause some real problems. But are you going to go in there and arrest somebody for taking too long in the stall? There's no stall limit. That's Alinsky. Overwhelm the system. 
And that's what's happening now at our border. It is a conscious decision by the cartels, by the far-left Democrats, by their international NGOs that are involved in trying to you know, push this stuff and make sure that we have no more, no hope anymore of any kind of a law enforcement situation that will get control of this. But the number now is worse and the situation is worse than it has ever been because we are dealing with this reality of no one who is arriving is going to be deported, really. No one realistically will. And, and that you have the Democrats still with the lies. I mean, think of all the, and I was on Tucker's show last night. If you missed it, go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Producer Mike, high five to you. He always pulls when I go on Fox so we can share it with you because I know some of you miss it. But it was a really good, really good exchange with Tucker. And then Tom Homan, who we'll get to in a few minutes. I really like Tom. He just reminds me of the best guys I work with at the NYPD. He's a law enforcement guy. He's a true LEO. And I was I was with Tucker last night. We're talking about this and just all the lies you have been told about immigration. Walls don't work. That's a lie. Immigrants are a net positive to the economy. That's a lie. Uh, illegal aliens commit fewer crimes uh, than native-born Americans. That's a lie. Uh, you know, you go down the list. The caravans won't ever even arrive at the border. This is all fear-mongering from Fox News. That's a lie. There's no crisis at the border. That's a lie. There's 11 million illegals in this country. That's a lie. You know, how many times do we have to go through this? When does the media cease to have any credibility on this issue? And, And when do we start to hold to account the far left Democrats who are pushing policies that have real costs, pretty horrific costs, actually. Secretary Nielsen, who is just getting getting attacked by the far left Democrats in the House now. I mean, the, you know, the the thing is, how how frustrated can I ever really be with Trump and the Republican Party when the alternative are are this this complete clown show of Democrats. I try to remind myself of that. I mean, thank God it's the situation that it is right now where I'm trying to, I I have a realistic hope that the people in power, the people in charge can do things to make things better instead of just, uh, you know, assuming that everything is going to be just fine and and then realizing, oh no, the Democrats are going to destroy everything they can, everything they touch will be poisoned in some way. At least with Democrats, I mean, at least with Republicans, I can work with them on it. But there are very real costs to this. And, and Secretary Nielsen spoke about how, I mean, look, this is horrific. It's horrific to hear. Um, but you need to know about the costs of the Democrats. Because remember, because Democrats won't enforce the law here, because they refuse to do what the law states at the border, which would involve deportations from people in the interior. It would involve... Uh, you know, de- deporting people quickly who arrive at the border who we believe to be lying about their credible fear instead of the current credible fear standard. Because of all of that, you have a giant magnet. The word is out and people know that they can come to this country, they'll be able to stay, and that's a huge benefit to them. So they're willing to take risks, but the risks that they're willing to take because of this are horrific. And here's what Nielsen said about it. Play clip seven. Because of the increase in violence at ICE, when we have families with children... 
we have to give every girl a pregnancy test over 10. This is not a safe journey. You have families who are bringing their children through cartel, not just infested, but controlled territory. And terrible things are happening en masse to young girls. This is only happening. Now, of course, the cartels and the, the monsters that are doing this, these girls are the ones that are responsible. But this circumstance would not be occurring if there was not this giant welcome mat that the Democrats refuse to pull away at our southern border right now for anyone arriving with children. This is an incentives-based situation. There's a cause and effect here. And there are real costs to it. And that's one of the things that Nielsen was talking about there. I mean, that these girls, the, the statistics on sexual assault of, of very young, I mean, of, of any woman is, is a terrible crime, but of very young girls. And I can't imagine, you know, being the, uh, the, the father of one of these girls who's, you know, you know, even, even if you, after the fact, knew who was responsible, you're talking about the cartels, you're really going to, you're going to go after a cartel. I mean, some of you are saying, yes, Buck, I would. And I respect that feeling. And I think I feel the same way, but you'd probably be signing your death warrant, right? You go after the cartels, they'll kill anybody. They don't care. You, you cause any slowdown in their business. They'll kill. And I also want to know at some point, when does Mexico get its act together? Are we ever allowed to ask that question? I know I'm, I can feel people like, Ooh, uh-oh. No, it's just true. Why are only 3% of crimes in Mexico prosecuted? Three. I was told that by the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. I mean, it's not something that I'm just pulling up out of nowhere. Why can't Mexico have any rule of law, so to speak, or to speak of whatsoever? You know, why does our neighbor to the South have such dysfunctional and corrupt institutions. You know, a lot of weed grown in Canada. I mean, you know, Canada could have cartels and stuff too, but somehow Canada's safe and orderly and fine. I, I really ask this question looking for an answer. You know, Costa Rica is not a, you know, uh, a backwards, lawless hellhole. And I know there are very nice parts of Mexico and all that stuff, but the Mexican state overall is dysfunctional and weak and corrupt and could you imagine if we found out that in this country there was a, a you know, that there were migrants on, on U.S. soil who were being abused and, and raped in this way? I mean, I think the outcry of the American people, you know, we'd, we'd send every task force we have. We'd send every, every uh, you know, burly, brawling law enforcement guy we know to go track down the SOBs and, and take care of business, you know, but... You know, on the Mexican side, there's not even a prayer of any justice for these people on the Mexican side of the border. And I, I asked the open question, why is that? Why Mexico is not a poor country. Lots of natural resources, lots of oil, beautiful climate. Why can't they stop having all these problems? You know, and people say, oh, Buck, it's the drug war. Uh, the drug war doesn't necessitate almost 40,000 people a year being murdered. That's a, that's a Mexico-specific problem. We'll be right back. We are heading for an economic reset, my friends. It's inevitable. I can't tell you when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen at some point. The market is going to correct. This is a historical certainty, and that's why I really want to encourage you to 
diversify your portfolio a little bit. And a great way to do that is with precious metals and a 401k, all right? Because you have a precious metal 401k that will help you insulate your portfolio against some crazy market moves, especially when the market gets really beat up. Guess what? Precious metals do well. Call my friends at Noble Gold. See if you qualify for their precious metals IRA program. They could make you a whole lot of money and it could cost you nothing to move some money you have right now sitting in an account into a precious metals IRA. Call them at 877-646-5347 or text BUCK to 511511. Again, 877-646-5347 or text BUCK to 511511. Individual results may vary. Invest wisely. Standard text rates may apply. Trump wins. Uh, that's the conclusion here. We'll sustain his veto. And let me remind your viewers that for every unaccompanied minor that comes to the United States, it costs us $375 a day to house these minors. They go through hell to get here. And on average, we're spending $136,000 per kid from the Treasury. This is a crisis. $1.6 billion going to be spent. We're approaching a million illegal immigrants by the end of the year. Our laws reward people for coming. We need to change our laws and we need to build a wall. Trump is going to win in Congress on the wall and I'm going to pursue legal changes to make sure you can be held more than 20 days, that you're not going to be released into the country before you have an immigration hearing. If we don't stop that, they will always keep coming. Lindsey Graham is spot on here. You know, I like sometimes Lindsey Graham. Yes, his most glorious moment was stepping in and defending Kavanaugh at that hearing when we all were just on the edge of our seats. Like someone, please, you know, give this give the help this guy return fire. I mean, this is outrageous. Right. And so and I, I talked to Senator Graham about it. I think I told you all about that. I spent about half an hour sitting down with Lindsey and uh, and he he knew that it was it was his, it was his Spartacus moment for real. It wasn't a laughable Spartacus moment. He actually was Spartacus that day. And I guess Spartacus in the end loses and his slave revolt is put down and everybody's massacred. But you know what I mean. He was a badass. Different different kind of thing. Um, but Lindsay is, is absolutely correct on the issue of the border. I'm just glad to see that there are some Republicans who understand what's going on here. And they, they there has to be legislation. This has to, Congress has to do something. And, you know, Democrats are going to try everything in their power to just continue the machinery of easy access for those arriving the border. They're going to want more beds, more judges. They're never pro-enforcement. That's where the, and a wall would be helpful to enforcement across the board. I'm not saying that a wall, and, you know, Lindsay there said we need to change laws and build a wall. That's right. I'm not saying a wall isn't necessary. A wall is very necessary. But even if we got the wall right now with the laws we have, I'm here to tell you, and I know this from the very top of the immigration enforcement uh, food chain, that a wall alone wouldn't be able to deal with the problem we have right now. It would help, but it wouldn't deal with the, the actual problem. It would help overall at the border, but it wouldn't deal with the problem of people who are showing up and surrendering uh, and trying to claim asylum uh, when they know they're not really asylees they're just people that want to come to this country so i give lindsey graham credit here um and uh oh ron johnson by the way you know he also 
seems to understand this. Play clip three. And from my standpoint, what I hope uh, the Republican Senate does is not uh, give Nancy Pelosi ball control of the United States Senate, but we should come up with our own piece of legislation that uh, basically states what our position is. We Republicans in the Senate support building the wall. We want to secure our border. We support the president on that. And to the extent that uh, if we don't like the fact that giving him this authority or any president's authority under the National Emergency Act, let's change that act. Mike Lee's going to have a bill that I'm co-sponsoring today that does just that. So that's the, the more appropriate way of doing this as opposed to voting for Nancy Pelosi's resolution. The president has the authority because Congress gave him the authority. I, I do not buy this argument that Congress does not have the authority to give the president authority. You know, if Congress wants to cede its legislative prerogative or if it wants to cede its its purview in some capacity to the president that, that it specifies, I, I don't see, I don't see where the mechanism is that says that the Congress can't do that. And, and it's very clear, very plain English in the statute. The president can declare this emergency. But everyone's gotten all caught up in this. And, you know, this is this is turned into unfortunately for Republicans. They've been split because some of them are, oh, I love the Constitution and this is too much power and authority. Uh, I, I, I think they're just flatly wrong. The ones who are telling the president that he doesn't have the right to do this. Uh, no, he very much does have the right to do this. And if it goes, if it continues or if it goes through the courts, I do believe that in the end he'll be found to have been correct all along. But then by that point, you know, they'll have moved on and they'll be they'll be investigating Baron Trump. They'll, they'll have a, a commission of Democrats that are just, you know, Baron Trump, when did you start chewing bubble yum and how much did you pay for it? You know, that little 10 year old Baron on the stand. Let me ask him crazy questions. Yeah. Do you know anything about the Moscow Tower deal? No. I mean, they're just going to go after a little Baron and because they have no shame. They just have no shame. I mean, I, I could see them finding any number of ways to go. You know, I, there is at least some analysis now that says that the Democrats understand that if they just start going after members of the president's family, they're going to they're going to have a real problem on their hands. I'm not saying that means the Democrats aren't so disgusting. They wouldn't do it. It just would be counterproductive for them. You know, I, I better not see some subpoena of Melania in front of Congress or or, or then then the, the gloves really come off. And uh, we're going to have to really think long and hard about, you know, whether whether there's there's room in this country for a political party that's as crazy as the Democratic Party has become. Uh, instead of trying to reform it, we may say we, we need something new. We need to. Uh, Start from scratch here with the the uh, other party, and, I, and I, look, I agree with the president, and I think that the Republicans that are turning against him on this uh, border security issue are, I think some of them are grandstanders. I'll just say it, and I, I think that they're missing the point. Uh, here's the president said, "Play four. I think that really it's a very dangerous thing for people to be voting against border security for anybody, including Republicans. I, I really think that Republicans that vote against border security in the wall. I think, you know, I've been okay at predicting things. I think they put themselves at great jeopardy. I I agree. Um, I think that they are going to have a very tough time explaining that to some of their constituencies, depending on who's up in 2020 and who's not. And it, it also does seem like this party, everybody in the Republican Party, I've noticed this, they want a piece of Trump's popularity. All the Republican politicians and the Republican establishment. Now, they all want a piece of, of Trump's popularity, but they don't want a piece of his fights. They don't really want to back him up. 
You know, they want to cheer him on while he runs around smashing things and, and trying to crush his enemies. But, but they don't want to get into the fray themselves. Uh, you, you see this with the Republicans on health care, on the border, on, on any number. The only thing we can count on from Republicans is tax cuts. While we're $22 trillion in debt, folks, I'm fine with tax cuts. But you know what else we need? Spending cuts. Where are my Republicans on that one? Oh, what a surprise they are. M.I.A. These cages, they want to call them, but these facilities where we house families were built under President Obama and Secretary Johnson. But now all of a sudden it's a terrible thing. And they, they yell about family detention and locking families up in a family residential center. When Barack Obama was president, we had 100 family detention beds. Under his administration, we built 3,000 more. I built them. So for the Democrats to mislead the American people saying these are Trump's cages and we're locking families up, and it's very easy. Democrats, they want to investigate it. FOIA the, the acquisitions paperwork. FOIA when these facilities were built. It's clear when they were built. 2014, 2015. The Democrats, they know the border is out of, out of control. It's, anybody who doesn't recognize that is just ignoring the facts. But their hatred for Trump is more important than their responsibility to protect our nation, protect our borders. That was Tom Homan, who was the former ICE director. And I always have a great, a great time in the green room at Fox when I see Tom because we just go back and forth. And he's a, he's a font of knowledge on the border. I think he appreciates that I've really become a, a student of immigration law and, and the realities of national security and, uh, and everything and the cartels and everything else that's happening at the border. So we have these really great talks. You know, it, it reminds me, I should have, I should have him here on the, uh, on the show. Again, we've had him before, but I should have him back on so we could kind of do a longer. I, I'd like to do a deep dive with him. Like just talk about, you know, for a couple of segments on, on everything at the border because he really knows. And there he's telling you that once again, you're being lied to. And that's one of the I think one of the most important things that I can I can hammer home here on the show because I'm gathering the data and I'm speaking now directly to the people who have access to all the information about what's happening at the border. I have built some really strong relationships with Border Patrol, with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. I am going. I mean, it's scheduled right now. You know, God willing, I'll be down there on time, uh, but I'm supposed to go down to El Paso in a few weeks. Maybe I can stop by Austin and say, what's up, KLBJ Austin? But it turns out Austin's not that close to El Paso. But I'm just so you know, to my KLBJ Austin family, I'm I'm actually I'm actively trying to find an excuse to come to your town because everyone tells me Austin is so awesome. So that will happen at some point uh, sooner than later. But I, I looks like I'll get down to El Paso. I'm hoping to spend a few days there to see what's going on at the border because next month the numbers are going to be out of control. And when I say next month, I mean this month. But for the, for the next time we have numbers, it's going to be 100,000. You essentially have uh, the the poorest and most desperate people from uh, Guatemala, uh, Honduras, and uh, El Salvador. You have them coming into America in, in now numbers that are going to reach the hundreds of thousands. That's what you have. They are leaving their home countries and coming to America it is really a, it's not just a, uh, an immigration issue. I mean, this is a migration, and we need to start thinking about it that way. You know, when you used to think back in social studies in, you know, sixth or seventh grade, they talk about the migration of people, you know, across the Bering Strait when there was the, uh, during the uh, Ice Age because of the land bridge. And, you know, you think of migrations of masses of people moving from one place to another. 
That's what we are seeing happening now in Central America. Now, you could say to me, Buck, it's not that many people, even if it's a million a year. Well, to that, I would say you're talking about countries that only have, you know, in the low millions in total population. I mean, El Salvador, how many people actually live in El Salvador? Mike, could you pull El Salvador, Honduras, and uh, and Guatemala for me just so I can actually give the numbers so I'm not just talking? See, I always got to give you guys the facts. Um, but the, the fact that Tom brings up, Tom Homan brings up that the cages, because, you know, the the go-to now for the Democrats is, oh, the children, and it's all about the children. Why do you separate the children? And I really hate it because it's so despicable. I hate it when they say that there was some malfeasance, and they do this, that there was some indifference on the part of Border Patrol to the two kids that were in, that were in custody who died. That is an absolute and they're a little careful about it because it's so provably false. But they'll they'll say, you know, they died in Border Patrol custody. Yeah, because they showed up with really high fevers. And by the time Border Patrol actually had custody of them to get them to the hospital, you're talking about a couple of hours like, you know, I know the men and women of Border Patrol. They're doing a very important job. They're serving their countries and they have their own families. They have their own kids. All right. They're not anti kids. They're not anti families. They're just trying to do a job. And they took those kids to medical care right away. I've seen the medical facilities there. They're setting them up, triage facilities on the border. By the way, that's another place where when people say the DOD has no role to play here, again, they don't know what they're talking about because it's a DOD program in San Diego that is setting up frontline medical triage for these migrants that are coming through. But it's a migration. This is a mass movement of individuals uh, from their region. I mean, this isn't like a country that's right next door. Now we're talking about Central America. Venezuela could be next. But Obama and the Obama administration, they they lit the match here. We are now dealing with the conflagration of loopholes exploited systematically by people who want to come into this country and want to avoid the, you know, immigration system as they do it. Right? They want to avoid dealing with our, our actual immigration laws, or rather they want to run through the, the seams in our immigration laws. The Obama administration knew this, which is why they built those or put in place those 3,000 more beds for families. They decided that this was going to be a place where they would not make a stand and there would be no consequences. See, that's the problem. The reason the law has these loopholes is because there are no consequences for the violations of the law. You know, if you break the law, guess what? They're going to separate you from your kids in this country. You, you don't get to bring your kids with you to prison. If you come into this country illegally, you've broken the law. You're, you're supposed to go through a legal process for that crime because it is a crime or else our law has no meaning. And if you also are going to be somebody that talks about what the law is with, with regard to asylum and this migration from Central America of those who are allegedly asylum seekers, although they're not really asylum seekers, they're just part of a migration, then you also have to be in favor of the interior enforcement. And this is where the real fight would be if Trump was honestly paying closer attention to this. You've got to start finding families that don't make their court dates or that, uh, that you know, they either don't show up or they show up and then aren't deported right away and they just melt back into the population. You've got to start deporting people because otherwise there's no reason not to come here. All you have is upside. Access to our welfare benefits, our wonderful, safe, uh, clean, wealthy country. 
you know, anybody who shows up now can find their way. You know, I can't imagine how the legal immigrants listening to the show must feel about this, right? What a scam this whole thing is. But we got more. Stay with me. I didn't do this stuff. This is not me. I'm fighting for my life. Y'all killing me with this. I gave you 30 years of my career. Robert. 30 years of my career. Robert Kelly, known as R. Kelly, is once again in a uh, very precarious position with the law. He is under investigation for criminal sexual conduct. He has been arrested. He faces multiple charges. And he is, I, th- I think, finally going, to, uh, finally going to face real justice. I don't know how many of you have seen the documentary uh, about R. Kelly, Surviving R. Kelly, which was on, I believe, Lifetime. But it is it is pretty riveting. Uh, I'm not somebody who usually gets into, you know, I, I don't like celebrity gossip stuff, but this is a true crime story. This isn't a celebrity gossip thing. Um, the fact that this individual was as famous as he was for as long as he was, when it was pretty well known that he was a sicko and a sociopath, you know, he has that song. Um, yeah, Mike said, Mike, did you see the Lifetime series? You know what I'm talking about? Because it's, yes. and John, did, yeah, John, did. did you see it too? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's really, it makes for, uh, yeah. it's tough watching in some parts, but it's also, I think, really, really powerful. Yeah. But Mike, isn't it amazing that this guy yeah. faced, uh, he faced, not just um, statutory rape charges. He faced child pornography charges for videotaping, a, you know, sexual acts with an under with I think a fourteen or a fifteen year old, and he managed to beat the charge. Right. This they had guy. the video, yeah. and they showed the they showed the jury the video, and he he kept videos of his sexual activities, and he managed to beat it. And it was pretty clear that he paid off the family of this girl. I think uh, because the girl wouldn't testify against him. Right. Um, but that this guy, you know, that you think back to the Dave Chappelle era and I mean, I, I don't want to talk about what, what happened, you know, the Dave Chappelle skit on the show right now. I don't think it's appropriate, but some people at home will know exactly what I'm talking about. It was known that R. Kelly was a sicko and Mike, nobody really cared. We, we keep seeing this. I shouldn't say nobody cared, but a lot of people in, you know, in the world of consuming media seem to think that it just wasn't that big a deal. You know, we look now at these, these figures Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, Harvey Weinstein, uh, these, these true predators that were in these incredible positions of power. And it does make you wonder, you know, how, how do they get away with it for so long? You know, yeah. how, how does R. Kelly convince women who are adults now that he groomed for when they were very young teenagers to turn on their own? Did you see this? They turned on their own parents in an interview with Gail King. Mm-hmm. Power and money, Buck. Power and oh money will do weird God. things to people. It's disgusting. <laughs> it is. He's it a scumbag. He disgusting. is a real life scumbag. Yeah, he is a real life scumbag. And and you know it's, it, what's the song that um uh fly, not fly away? That's Lenny Kravitz. Um I, oh I believe I can fly. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring up Lenny Kravitz. He's a great guy. I just fly away. I believe I can fly. I got them confused. Um, I believe I can fly is is a song, and this comes up in the documentary too. It's a song that you would hear in black churches 
It would be sung by the choir. And R. Kelly kind of used some of his credibility and and some of the, the goodwill from within the uh, particularly the, the the black Baptist community in Chicago and, and and other places around the country to rally to his side because people were used to singing his songs in church. I mean, I think about Michael Jackson and you know, think about in retrospect how many parties I was at. I mean, I think I don't think I went to a high school dance, for example, where they weren't playing at some point a Michael Jackson song. I don't think it ever. I think at some point you always heard a Michael Jackson song. And now everyone's like, yeah, it looks like he actually was a pedo the whole time. It's just stunning. Um, I, I don't have any really deeper analysis of, of the fact that some of these figures, Bill Cosby, Bill Cosby was one of the most beloved American television stars of all time. And now how long did he get in prison, by the way? Did we, it was like, wasn't it a while, quite a, quite a few years? I forget now for, for drugging and, and raping women. I mean. I was just going through some of this R. Kelly stuff and uh, you know why it took so, people so long and why people you know weren't pressing charges. He was offering, on top of money, he was also offering recording contracts to these. Oh, girls. of course, yeah. yes, like hundred. That's 000, really where 000. you know that's that's a whole other thing too. And then, by the way, it's the same thing with Weinstein. There's the power you get from writing a check, which is substantial. You can get a lot of silence and it depends on how big the check is. You know, when Michael Jackson wrote somebody a check for $23 million, who was basically accusing, it was accusing him of sexually assaulting a kid. I'm sorry, I don't care who you are, or how much money you have. You don't write someone a check for $23 million for molesting a kid if, if you didn't molest the kid. Because you, you just, as a man, you fight that. And you say, if you're innocent, if you're innocent, I think you fight that with everything you've got and you never you let it be known every day of your life till the day you die that you would never harm a child like that. If you write a check for twenty three million dollars, uh, I think people are allowed to ask big questions about it. Now we find out that, you know, with all the stuff that we know, it was exactly what we thought at the time. Uh, but, you know, the other part of it, Mike, and this is what you bring up, is that, you know, when you can offer somebody not just money, but success and status that's even more powerful for a lot of people, yeah. right? Because it, it kind of actual it itself it allows them to self-actualize, allows them to to become what they want to become. And, you know, the money is a part of it. But if you can say that you'll make somebody the star that they've always wanted to be, Harvey Weinstein certainly did it. I mean, it was a pretty straightforward thing, right? You, you have sex with disgusting monster Harvey Weinstein. You know, you have sex with Jabba the Hutt Weinstein and you'll get a movie role. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that that's unfortunately, a, you know, the other part of this is for all the women who, you know, Harvey Weinstein um, groped and assaulted and, you know, is obviously getting in trouble and, and facing uh, criminal charges for and all this. I'm sure, there are there are a fair amount of women. I mean, based on what you read in the tabloids, they're not going to come forward because they just they took the deal. They just said, sure. I mean, if I have to sleep with this guy to, to get ahead, I'm I'm going to and. Uh, you know, these are man, the, the, the entertainment industry in particular just draws a lot of the worst people. That's what you find out. There's just a lot of, uh, because it's so the, the line between, uh, penury and obscurity and riches and fame is a very thin one sometimes for people and people get very desperate and they're willing to do, you know, they're willing to do things that, they wouldn't otherwise do, but they feel like they have no choice. And then there are people who know that and exploit that and exploit it to the hilt. Anyway, R. Kelly, I I really hope they nail him this time. He's facing some very, very 
serious 10 counts of aggravated sexual abuse. Three of the four alleged victims were underage and Kelly has pleaded not guilty. Um, and New York and Illinois are now investigating a variety of allegations as well. I think the documentary, Mike, what do you, I think the documentary played a role in this too. I think people saw this and they're like, okay, they got to get this guy. Yeah. It was so in their face that they're like, all right, we got to do something about this. Yeah, like this is just this is just outrageous. It's almost like they were like taunting people to do something. It's like this. Is and I, I think that if Michael I think if Michael Jackson were still alive, they would probably take the same. Look, the same thing with Bill Cosby. The guy got away with it for so long. You know, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Michael Jackson, all these guys. It's just the predators row, man. It's it's yeah, it's really disturbing stuff. Anyway, we got. Uh, David Harsanyi is going to be joining it. I, I want to ask David about, I mean, he writes very eloquently on the topic of what's been going on with Ilhan Omar and all this anti-Semitism. And this has somehow become the, the biggest story. Well, the border is really the biggest story in the country this week and should be an even bigger story, in my opinion. I, I think that at some level, people don't really want to hear it because, I, and I mean, Trump supporters don't want to hear it. I I feel like when I tell you what's going on at the border right now, there will be some portion of this audience that's like, Buck, you're being too hard on the president or you don't understand. Or, Look, I, I'm not saying he can't turn this around and I'm not putting all the blame at his feet. It's certainly Congress that has the, the lion's share of the blame. But this is happening under this president and he needs, you know, I need that, that president that's out there fighting all the time. He needs to be fighting to get the border under control because it is out of control right now. We'll talk to Harsanyi in just a moment here about anti-Semitism. Stay with me. I kick off every day the same way, my friends, with a delicious cup of Black Rifle coffee. I know there's a lot of coffee drinkers that listen to this, and I'm telling you, they are the official coffee of the Buck Sexton Show. I get Black Rifle coffee delivered to me every month. I drink it every day of the week. You need to see for yourself. This is delicious coffee. If you like a little bit of a kick from the caffeine, too, let me tell you, this gets you lit up in all the best ways. Also, Black Rifle Coffee is a company run by former special operations vets, and they give a portion of their sales to veteran and first responder causes. Their coffee is roast to order. It's guaranteed fresh, delivered to your door, and it's absolutely delicious. Join the coffee club. Make things easy. So while Libs threaten to tax you and take away all your rights, guess what? Black Rifle Coffee is going to fuel the fight for freedom by upping their offer to 20% off. Take advantage by going to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 20% off your order. Again, that's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 20% off. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Congresswoman Omar, it seems like there's some confusion among your colleagues. Are you anti-Semitic? Congresswoman, can I just quickly ask, uh, would you support this resolution uh, condemning anti-Semitism? My only question, just would you support the resolution condemning anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry? Congresswoman, would you support the resolution condemning anti-Semitism? Congresswoman, would you support the resolution condemning all forms of bigotry? I guess it's... Not exactly all about the Benjamins anymore for Congresswoman Omar there. Doesn't have a lot to say, does she? Huh. What is going on here? Seems like she could at least verbalize her support for the resolution condemning anti-Semitism. But as we know, it's now going to condemn a lot more than that. What is this all about? 
Our buddy David Harsanyi is with us now. He's got a great piece up on thefederalist.com. The Democratic Party has normalized anti-Semitism. Yes, Ilhan Omar is a problem. The fact that Democrats refuse to condemn her rhetoric is a disaster. He's senior editor at The Federalist. Mr. Harsanyi, great to have you back. Great to be back. Thanks. What is this dumpster fire the Democrats are are sifting through this week? I mean, I, I really assume this wouldn't be quite the story it is because it seems pretty straightforward, right? Members say something really anti-Semitic. People say, hey, no anti-Semitism. Stop that crap. And then, But no, that's not what's happening here. What is happening? Well, I guess there's a large contingent within the Democratic Party, obviously within the base, and there's a presidential election coming, so you have candidates as well who are concerned about that. We don't really see much wrong with what she said. They, they, well, they lie actually and say that she was, you know, just being critical of Israel and being critical of Israel shouldn't, you know, shouldn't chill that speech. And I agree. No one says you shouldn't be able to criticize Israel. No one says you shouldn't be able to say anything you want to say. Um, but what she's done is use really old, you know, long-standing smears against Jews that they have loyalty to another country before themselves or money before their, their country. And, uh, and, that's the, and that seems like what many progressives and Dems want to defend and protect because, I guess, I don't know why. I guess there's... Yeah, what's the why? why, why what do they benefit from? I mean, it, you know, my, my only theory is that... I mean, I, I, got two, I got a couple things, actually, David, so why don't I pose them to you? On the one hand... I think that the left now runs the Democratic Party and and the old guard, the Pelosi Schumer wing, they still control some of the processes and money and things like that. But in terms of the messaging and the ideology, I think that the the hard turn left of the party is almost a a wake up call for some members of the Democratic Party. 100 percent agree with that. I think that they're far more concerned or. Yeah, I mean, they can't control these freshmen. They can't control these people. And uh, it's, a, it's a growing, growing faction of the Democratic Party. All the energy of the Democratic Party, when you see either Bernie or the Women's March or whatever, it's socialistic. Socialists are typically, you know, uh, anti-Israel, anti-colonialist, however they frame it. And I think that's a much more popular position on the left, at least the political sort of professional activist left than, than people would like to think. What is it with... And I just have to ask, you know, look, I, I grew up in New York City. I have a, obviously grew up around a lot of people that, well, went to Jewish schools and, uh, you know, are, are very steeped in in, uh, in Judaism in New York. And, and yet they're mostly liberals, David. <laughs> so, you know, what I think is interesting is that how is it that the that, that most of the uh, most of my Jewish friends growing up in New York are liberal Democrats, but there is also simultaneously within the Democratic Party, this anti-Israel feeling that is not just from Omar. There's actually a, a lot of American Jews that I've spoken to who are really hateful toward Israel. I mean, you know, there, I've spoken to American Jews who think that Israel shouldn't exist. So what is that? Well, sadly, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, and sadly, I think there's a bunch of people who, who how can I say this, uh, they are more interested or care more about their ideology, and that has become their religion in a way, and that has become their uh, identity. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm not saying that people should, uh, you know, Israel be one. You know, Israel should be a one issue. You know, for 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 Jews or anyone else. But I think that how you think about Israel and how you think about the Jewish people and Israel says a lot about how you think about things in general. Israel is a liberal democracy in the middle of a you know bunch of theocracies and terrorist states. And I think when you don't support them, you tell us a lot about what you're thinking and its ideology. 
I argue many times that anti-Zionism is basically anti-Semitism because it functionally is. If you're saying Jews are the only people on earth who aren't, don't deserve a state even after they've fought for one, and many people have died for it, that tells us usually something about your broader thinking. And too many leftists in this country value progressivism over anything else. And I think it's become a religion for them because they have no faith and that's the vacuum needs to be filled and that's what fills it. Yeah, there's no such thing as a nation state that exists today that has not gone through various iterations of somebody else controlling that land and mm-hmm. bloodshed and oppression and all kinds of things. But, you know, it's going to be it's going to be really tough for the Iroquois nation to kick out, you know, everybody who lives in northeastern America. Right. I mean, at some point there needs to be some recognition of what reality is. I forgot who said it, but it, the quote was, you know, we stole it fair and square. I think that in the end, you have to move on with history. When you talk about Israel, you're talking about even a longer history. Places like Hebron mean the Hebrew, you know, of the Hebrews or Hebrew town, basically. You know, you're talking about long history here. And, you know, the, frankly, the Jews have done everything they can in Israel to, make, to try to help and create a Palestinian state. I know people think that that's nuts, but it's true. No sane nation is going to say, hey, oh, you're terrorists over here, you want to destroy us, why don't we give you a state here right next to us on our border, overlooking our, 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 our capital city, and do what you want. That's just outrageous. No one would do it. No one expects any country to do it for real. And, uh, you know, so Omar and her contingent will never be, never be happy with what's going on. And, uh, you know, her attacks are widespread against all Jews, not Israelis only. And that's something we should always remember when we talk about it. What, what, what would be a sufficient, a, a sufficient response from the, from the Democratic Party on this issue? I mean, there, there is, is, if she got removed from her committee assignment, would that at least feel like there's some consequence? Does it have to be more than that? Or, or also, are we just living in a, in a, in a country now where... Democrats will put aside whatever their guidelines are on these issues whenever it suits them, and that's that, and we just need to understand that. I mean, this resolution is ridiculous now because it's a resolution. A resolution about everything is a resolution about nothing. But more than that, even a resolution that condemns anti-Semitism, as the earlier uh, drafted, is useless. I don't want to police someone's speech. The problem is that she's on a committee, that, that, that Pelosi after seeing her tweet on the Jews hypnotizing the world for evil, put her on that committee, a foreign affairs committee, and more than that, was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine with her, what, last week? I mean, you know, that's the problem. The problem that is that, that it's being normalized. I don't tell the Democratic Party what to do. I don't even care. I mean, I care what they do, but, you know, they do what they do. The problem isn't any one specific measure. The problem is that this is a more pop, increasingly popular position within that party, and that's that's dangerous, I think, for, for the country in many ways. How much of this also do you see as the clash of intersectionality within itself? I mean, with Omar, you have somebody who is female, who is black, and who is a Muslim. So, you know, the way the Democrats, and look, I, I work with liberals every day at the Hill, and I know how they think about things, and I know how they assess, and it, it is almost like they have a, a matrix of different uh, levels of oppression I mean, this is intersectional thinking and and we know that there is a a different standard but do you think that there's a different standard applied to all kinds of minority groups in terms of what they're allowed to say what they can say period also how far they can go on certain things but what i want to ask you is how much of this do you think is the fact that you have a a muslim american now member of congress who is saying, and I, I brought this up yesterday to the show, and David, you could defer on this one because I don't want to get you in any trouble, and a lot of people listen to this show, but this is pretty commonplace in the Muslim world. I'm sorry to say it. It's just true. I mean, this is much more widespread in the Muslim world than people want to, want to admit. 
you know, we should not get in trouble for, for just simply stating facts. Across the Islamic world, according to Pew polling and other polling, anti-Semitism is sky high in the 90% in some places. I haven't seen a poll here in the, in the you know, among American Muslims. I hope it would be less. I'm sure it will be less. But it's still obviously a, a, a problem, you know. And I think when you talk about this sort of hierarchy of, of, of uh, you know, victimhood, I guess, she is at the tippy top. You, you can't do better than that. Maybe if she was gay, she would do better than she has. Other than that, you can't get higher. So she has she has levels of, of, of near invincibility because of that. I mean, if, if this, you know, if this was, uh, you know, a, a white guy named Mike Johnson from Missouri, he'd be off that committee. Absolutely. And the yeah. thing is, I've seen many people, attack, I mean, a bunch of people have attacked me in using that kind of language. Oh, it's a black woman, a Muslim, I'm Islamophobic. I don't, I don't really even care what, what she is. I care about what she's saying. I know no one believes that. But more than that, I've seen the Washington Post ran a piece where it basically said the Jews are white people with, and, and, and do well in this country. And they just basically should be quiet and listen to her because she has gone through something. You know, she lives a life with that is, is, is harder or whatever their case was. And it's just it's, it's unintellectual. I don't really even know how else to put it. That's not a rational way to talk about people, and especially not in America where we, we're not supposed to judge people like that. And I also think that there's, and this is true of everything, the, the left hasn't yet figured out how to, the Democratic Party and, and the media, which, you know, I repeat myself, they haven't figured out yet really what to do about the growth of the hypersensitive left about all things and the realities of Islam on a global level. They haven't, because those things are going to be a real tough match for a long time. Yeah, Absolutely. And, it, it, and we can't really have a, a, an honest discussion about any of that, right? I mean, if I right when I get off, I'll probably go on Twitter and people will be calling me, you know, an Islamophobe for saying what I just said. But you know, the, 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 this is the reality of the world, and it's something we have to deal with, or things aren't going to get better, and they just continue to get worse. And every argument is sort of just brushed over with this identity politics. It's impossible to have a discussion about anything in any sort of rational or realistic way. David Arsani, everybody, check out his latest at The Federalist. The Democratic Party has normalized anti-Semitism, thefederalist.com, where he is a senior editor. David, always good to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Speak to you soon. A lot of you have probably heard of the AARP, but probably haven't heard about the fact that the AARP is a seniors organization that's pretty left-wing. They really push for Obamacare and they're into an expansive state and higher taxes, and you don't support or believe any of that. So if you're a senior, why not join a seniors organization that also shares your values? That's AMAC. Why do I think you should go with AMAC? Well, AMAC was founded by an Air Force veteran, and he's a patriot who loves his country and shares your conservative values. And that filters throughout the organization. AMAC has over 1.5 million members, and a lot of listeners to this show have already joined. You should check it out. It'll get you discounts on car insurance, hotels, all kinds of things, and also be supporting the America that you want for the future. Go to amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. Stand with AMAC today. Hi, everyone. I have some news to share with all of you, and it's in keeping with my longtime policy of being open and transparent with our Jeopardy! fan base. I also wanted to prevent you from reading or hearing some overblown or inaccurate reports regarding my health. So therefore, 
I wanted to be the one to pass along this information. Now, just like 50,000 other people in the United States each year, this week I was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. Now, normally the prognosis for this is not very encouraging, but I'm going to fight this, and I'm going to keep working, and with the love and support of my family and friends, and with the help of your prayers also, I plan to beat the low survival rate statistics for this disease. Truth told, I have to, because under the terms of my contract, I have to host Jeopardy for three more years. So help me, keep the faith, and we'll win. We'll get it done. Thank you. Tough stuff to hear there from Alex Trebek, who is a, who is a true icon and not one who is, uh, you know, flashy and, and had all kinds of scandal in his background and just, you know, it seems like he's always been a, a very stand-up guy. I mean, look, I don't know him, I, nothing about him other than just his, his work. But he's one of those people who you just always, at least for me, I mean, I can't speak for any of you, but I would be willing to to guess that at least some of you feel the same way. That Trebek, as the guy on Jeopardy, his presence is one of those people in your life that even if you're, I'm not a Jeopardy watcher, but I've seen many episodes of Jeopardy. Um, he's one of these people who you just always assume he's going to be there. You just always assume that Alex Trebek will be the voice you hear when you're flipping through channels and sure enough jeopardy comes on and you think that you're going to just run the table and you get one right and then two or three of them you're like what is that uh but alex trebek now is facing that demon that so many of us face uh cancer one of the worst kinds unfortunately too i think the uh in terms of the statistically the worst cancers in this country are uh, for mortality rate lung cancer uh, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, and I forget what the fourth one is, but they're very, very high on the list. The reason that pancreatic cancer is so deadly is because it is a, a, a an organ that is deep in the body, and it is very important for endocrine function, and you know it's it's an important organ. But beyond that, you usually don't have any symptoms until it's already spread to the lymph nodes, and then it's then it, for most people it's too late. The five year survival rate for the cancer that Alex Trebek has, I think, 5%. Um, but you heard him give that speech in a very Alex Trebek way, very understated and uh, just just the facts, just being uh, upfront and, and, you know, rallying his audience, which is a very substantial one. I, mean, I think I think Trebek is, is one of those those rare fellows in the media who is pretty much universally liked and respected for what he's done. You know, he didn't. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't decide to start a rock band in his 60s. You know, he didn't have some uh, some you know midlife crisis where he thought that he was actually a hip hop artist or something. I mean, he's just been doing Jeopardy and doing it very well for a very long time. I, I guess it's it's a, a reminder for me. Of why would this stick out to me? Rarely do I take much note of, you know, celebrities who are, who are dealing with, you know, personal uh, personal demons or dealing with, in this case, a personal health issue, because I have enough on my mind trying to be supportive to the people that I actually know in life and my own friends and family members. Um, but I, I've told you this before, when Christopher Hitchens died, for example, that was one of the first times in my life where I thought, uh, 
This is somebody who I've spent a lot of time with in terms of his work. And I just always thought that his work would always be there. And when it wasn't, I noticed. You know, that was one of the first times uh, that that had ever happened to me where I thought, oh, this person that I've built a, a connection to in my life, I mean, served this role to sometimes educate, sometimes enrage. Uh, sometimes I got very angry at what Hitchens is writing. Sometimes I was inspired by what he was writing. But he, this is a person whose work had a real effect on me. But I always just thought, you know, Hitchens would make it into his 90s. He's one of these guys who was a smoker who said it didn't matter and he drank a lot and all this stuff. And no, he did not. I think he had uh, esophageal cancer uh, or some form of throat cancer. I can't remember now. Uh, Trebek, it's the same thing. It's a reminder that we are all here on a temporary basis, my friends. We are all on borrowed time. All of us are uh, going to going to have to deal with these kinds of weeks, either ourselves or for loved ones. So, well, there's all this to do about what's going on on Capitol Hill, and I'm talking to you about the border, and I mean, these things are important, which is why I talked to you about them, and, and understanding what's going on in this country around us really does matter. But it does matter even more that every day you think to yourself, at some point in the day, a day above ground is a good day. And I have the ability to, in my own way, have a, a positive effect on those around me to inspire people to be a little bit kinder to each other, to be helpful to people who are in need, and in some cases, maybe to entertain people that are having a really bad day, you know, to bring somebody else out of, you know, you don't, you don't know that that one nice comment you make to somebody in your office, that might be to somebody who just found out that they have stage four pancreatic cancer. You just don't know. I think that's an important thing to remember. So we wish Trebek all the best in his fight. He is uh, an American icon, and they say the odds are against him, but they don't know Trebek. I think he's going to pull through, and he'll be doing Jeopardy for another 20 years. We'll be right back. So you recall, uh, I think we had on my friend Benny Johnson from Turning Point USA to talk about this when it first happened, but there's this, uh, this group that was trying to recruit conservatives on campus uh, out at UC Berkeley, the birthplace of the free speech movement. It, it should be noted that that is now the place where if you try to convince people to listen to you when you represent a solid, oh, hmm, 50% or so of the country, uh, you could get punched in the face. You could, in fact, get punched in the face. And there was this there was this incident. It was televised. The guy was very belligerent, very nasty and really landed kind of a right cross on a uh, on a young man's face uh, out in Berkeley. And this is now a criminal case because they are going to bring charges because turns out you aren't allowed. You are not, in fact, allowed to punch a conservative in the face just because you don't like their conservatism. Zachary Greenberg is the alleged assailant although there's very clear video of him punching somebody for no apparent reason so i don't know how long it'll be alleged uh they have had some press go up to mr greenberg's well go up to him and his attorney outside of the uh, courthouse and i just want to play a little bit of how th this is this is not a good when your defense attorney stops to talk and has to talk like this it's not a good sign play 16. Uh, mr greenberg or counsel any thoughts at this time 
about the punch and the charge. I know we, you pleaded not guilty. You're, anything you want to say for yourself at this um, point? You could direct the microphone to my way. Is there anything you can say? Uh, Mr. Greenberg is a 28-year-old man. He was using the library at UC Berkeley to study. I realize that many people observing this case are interested in constitutional freedom. And I would remind that one important constitutional freedom is the presumption of innocence, due process of law, due process in a courtroom, not on social media or the internet. Um, with those remarks, I have no further comments at this time. Thank so you. Okay, so let me just say that, that when your lawyer, when your lawyer is, I just want to remind everybody that we do have a presumption of innocence and there is a process. <laughs> this is like, you know, Mike, if your lawyer did this, I think, I think you should fire the lawyer. Yeah. I think and she sounded really nervous, didn't she? Like, oh my, she yeah, was like, she's like, she did not want to be there. I was just waiting for her to be like, I mean, yes, my client yeah. punched a kid in the face for no reason. Yeah. And yes, he's in a whole lot of trouble and I have yeah. no prayer of getting him out of it, but I just want to remind everybody. And the video that like, that it, He's standing there right next to her, and he's just like, like he's like acting like it's not even happening, and she's just looking at him like it was so awkward. I just felt like at any second she was going to turn to him and be like, you know what, I give, he's guilty, and just like walk away. That's what I mean exactly. She sounded like she's already had it. I mean, yeah. they they haven't even gone through any any parts, any stages of the process, and she's just like, oh gosh, what am I going to do? This guy, by the way, you know, he's charged with felony assault, felony battery, and felony criminal threats. They're actually going after him for his attack on Hayden Williams of the Leadership Institute. And, you know, you don't ever want... I had a friend a long time ago who was charged with... Just because he ran a fraternity house, essentially, and somebody got way too drunk. No one no one was really injured or anything, but someone got way too drunk. And, and the, the local authorities charged him with operating a nuisance, which sounds like, you know, something that's not that terrible until you realize that it's a felony. And the moment that you're charged with a felony, it's just the whole thing, because that stays with you. That's a problem. You can't just be like, yeah, I'll take that felony charge. You know, misdemeanors you can plead out and, and they can get them wiped from your record. Uh, speaking of operating a nuisance, this was, a, this was a great one. And I know that people, look, you all, if you listen to this show, you know that I love dogs. Dogs are one of my favorite things in life. I mean, if you're telling me my, my choices are between coffee and dogs, I mean, I, I go dogs because coffee can't be your best friend, even though I'd be pretty irritable without my Black Rifle coffee. That said, people who don't take care of their dogs properly and allow them to bark endlessly are a public nuisance. It's not okay. You can't have your dog go up your neighbor's fence and woof, 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 woof for hours and hours. I, I've had this problem before myself. And let me tell you, it can happen at two o'clock in the morning It and the police show up and the police don't can't do anything really. And a New Jersey town is proposing. This is the town of Saddle River, which is a fancy New Jersey town. Oh, hello, Saddle River. Uh, that if your dog barks for over 20 minutes continuously throughout the day, you could go to jail. At night, from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m., it is 15 minutes of barking. Fines ranging up to $1,000, but could also receive a service of uh, sentence of community service or even prison time. Now, this is where my interstatist kicks in. Smoking, noise. Uh, and I know this. I'm, I'm being ideologically inconsistent here. This is big government. I get it. But I might move to Saddle River just so I can be in a place where people can't let their dogs bark for hours on end. Roof, roof, roof. 
There is nothing that'll drive you crazier than a neighbor with a dog that's barking at 2 a.m. for two hours. What, you're, what do you do? Earplugs, please. I've tried it. Trust me. Hey, you so do at least, that, you do what they did in Seinfeld. You go kidnap the dog. I got to watch that episode. I haven't seen that. That's one. awesome. Oh, all right. See, I, I've seen a lot of Seinfeld. I need to watch it chronologically so that I've, I, I've missed too many episodes of it. All right, everybody. Roll calls coming up. Stay with me. Liberty, truth, and great hair. those funky beats it's time for roll call man i can't believe that the weekend is almost here very exciting i'm going to be up in nyc tomorrow spending some time with miss molly and the fam the sexton crew that's always always a fun time gonna go up to new york and be around people who don't just do politics. Wouldn't that be a nice thing? Oh, what do you do for a living? Well, I work on Capitol Hill. Oh, I work on K Street for a foundation that looks to make sure that the people with the most boring jobs in the country keep the most boring jobs in the country exactly as they are. Wow, that sounds that sounds like really sexy stuff there, average DC native. So it'll be nice to be up in NYC. But see, I'm here in the swamp so that I can bring you all of the all of the frontline truth from Swamptasia, which is where where I am. And with that, we'll get to your thoughts via the roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton for roll call. And here we go. Brandon writes, hey, Buck, you were saying that you don't have an Al Gore impersonation. I think your Beto impersonation sounds a lot more uh, what South Park makes Al Gore sound like. But like Beto is just like, he's just always... Oh, like, he's so earnest. And Beto just wants, like, all the good things to happen for all the people. But, like, we're going to have to come together and unite around the unity and the bringing together of the togetherness. And, like, maybe a lot of middle-aged liberal women are excited to see my abs, so we'll have to do that, too. That's pretty much Beto. Not much in that beyond Beto. Oh, and also I married a woman who's worth like a few hundred million dollars, but I totally, totally love working class people and poor people so much. Thanks, Beto. Glad you could join us. Uh, Nathan writes, Hey, Buck, regarding the Joe Rogan, Tim Pool, Twitter execs podcast and the general free speech problem of these leftist social media networks, in addition to snippy.com, you might want to check out Descent.com. It's a pretty brilliant place. You simply paste in a URL and it shows you others and can and others can comment on it in real time. Could be a game changer for speech on the internet. Shields high. Uh, Nathan, I've never heard of this thing. I will have to check it out. Thank you for bringing it to my uh, attention. Let's see. Carol. Hello, Carol. Buck, you were... Firing on all cylinders in the last podcast. I heard those remarks by the purported CNN national security analyst Vinograd. I had some residual respect to her due to her titles under the Obama administration. But after hearing her remarks about President Trump's CPAC speech, I was incensed. You properly characterized her. She's really taken with herself. She says some incredibly stupid stuff. The rest of your show was spot on, on fire. Thank you for all you do, Carol M. Well, Carol M., thank you for all you do, like listening to the show and writing me very nice and encouraging and inspiring notes. Uh, we have 
Will, who writes, Buck, good seeing you at the CPAC 2019 panel. Well, Will, good seeing you at the panel. Thank you so much for uh, writing in. And it was really nice. Everyone from Team Buck who showed up, I, I really always get a kick out of it, and I appreciate the support. So whenever there's a live event, which reminds me, whoa, whoa. What up, whoa, whoa? That's right, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Those of you listening in whoa, whoa land, we are going to be having a party on April 13th. Talk Tank. Whoa, whoa, Talk Tank. All you do is Google that. I will be there. Tommy Laren will be there. Todd Starnes will be there. It is going to be lit off the hook. You need to come hang out with us. Uh, the tickets are available now. Just type in whoa, whoa, Talk Tank. Uh, that's W-O-W-O, Talk Tank. And I'm hoping that a lot of folks who are Team Buck from the Fort Wayne, Indiana area will be in attendance because I will be in attendance and it will be good times uh tommy will be there too we'll have a really we'll really get into it and the whole point of it is to get a chance to share thoughts in front of everybody take a lot of questions and then hang out afterwards we're gonna have some drinks come out to the coast have a few laughs you know stuff like that uh nicholas writes love your show been a regular listener for a while now could you cover the gun bill in north carolina that has been brought up in the north carolina house well nicholas thank you for your kind words about the show i don't know anything about this North Carolina gun bill. So unfortunately, I can't on the spot tell you anything about it. But producer Mike always notes when I make a promise on air. And so he's going to make sure that I get in, get on that, get into it. ASAP. Catherine. Hey, Buck. Great job on Tucker tonight. You are so adroit in getting the most adroit. I always want to make it all Frenchy. Adroit in getting the most important points across in such a short time. Shields high always. Catherine. Well, thank you, Catherine. And I try to make the most of whatever time I have on Big T's show on the Tuck Man, the Tucker Rooner, the Tucker Ruski. Uh, he is always, I will tell you this, he's always fun on and off set and is uh, very nice to me and very encouraging. And uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Tucker fan. I think he's great. Um, he's really uh, been very generous and, and really been cool since I've moved down here to D.C. and I've gotten a chance to meet him. I actually didn't know him before. I'd never, oh, maybe I'd met him a couple of times up in New York, but never really gotten a chance to talk to him much. Jennifer writes, hey there, podcast listener here. You're wrong about Nirvana, but I don't come to you for your music. Fair point, Jennifer, fair point. I come for your sane and rational opinions. So maybe you can answer this for me. Why can't Trump put the wall funding in this bipartisan infrastructure bill we keep hearing about? Who's going to notice $25 billion for a wall in a $1.7 trillion bill proposal? Jennifer, the Democrats will not allow it because it's such a politically sensitive issue for them because it's a political win for Trump and they know that. So trust me, it, it's not possible to uh, fit that in there. Uh, it's, it, they, they would have a fit. Uh, they would freak out if Trump tried to put wall funding in there. I, I can't lie to you folks. It's the situation. The border is really bad and it's happening under the presidency where we were supposed to fix it. So that's disappointing. It's not over yet. I get it. I know that a lot of things are arrayed against Trump, but, you know, we've we've also got to hold him to standards that he really set for himself. He said there'd be a wall. He said he'd secure the border. There isn't a wall, and the border is the least secure that it's been. In some ways, you could argue, in the last decade plus. That's how bad things are right now. Um, and it's not just because of the security mission there, of course. There's this, the main main issue is this surge of migrants from the Northern Triangle countries, uh, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua. Uh, I don't know if the triangle, let me just make sure that before I tell you this, I don't want to tell you 
what the Northern Triangle countries are. And then it turns out that I'm because El Salvador is obviously right there as well. But I want to make sure that I'm telling you this right. The Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. See, it is not Nicaragua after all. I, I got to bring you the facts. I, I can't if I say I will tell you this and I hope that all of you maybe you think this is just kind of OCD or weird. I hope you respect this. I feel badly whenever I say something that's factually wrong on the show. And I always try to come on the next day and correct it as long as I remember that I said something that's wrong. But I, I actually feel badly about it. Like I've like I've let the team down a little bit. So I try really hard, guys, to not get things wrong. But uh, unfortunately, I am human. But yeah, the Northern Triangle is Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. It is not Nicaragua. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Michael, what's up, Michael? He writes, Buck, the swoop and beard looking fierce last night on Tucker. Keep dropping those border truth bombs, shields high. Well, Michael, thank you so much, man. I mean, the beard's coming in. It's a little, it's still a little scraggly. It's still a little like, hello, sir. I'd like to buy some of your finest wine coolers, perhaps a Zima. Yes, of course, I am over the age of 21 years of age. Here is my identification. It is an operator's license from the island of Vanuatu. Not that I ever, ever bought alcohol when I was underage, guys. No, no, no. That's not a thing that I did growing up in New York City. Man, I know people that pre-9-11 had such fake ID operations going on. I, I, you know, if... If the feds ever decided to care, they would have really had a big problem on their hands with some of the people running around New York City who are making making fakes. I'm pretty sure that gets you in a lot of trouble now. Back in the 90s, I feel like people didn't really, really care. But, you know, I used to, I used to, I used to hear things. I used to see some of those fake IDs that people had and go, whoa, that must have cost uh, quite a penny. Uh, now, whenever I see somebody who's under the age of, of 30 in a bar, I think to myself, man, I'm getting old. I'm getting old. Uh, let's see here. Well, we have a lot of people sending me links, which I can't I can't always click on right away. Um, Richard writes, uh, hello, my friend. Game of Thrones question for you. You have a magic ice wall whose ice has been condensing for thousands of years. They used its magic to resurrect a guy, and the dragon fire just cuts through it like nothing. It looked cool, but the science part of me was saying WTH. Still, I can't wait for next season. Do you think the books will ever get finished? Shields high. Winter is coming. Richard, you know, I haven't read any of the Game of Thrones books. And as for whether or not I think that things would go well for the, uh, you know, if things will go well in this season, I'm a, I'm a little, look, they're spending a ton of money on it. So that's, at least there's that. I think the production value is going to be as good as any movie you've ever seen, which is pretty amazing for a television show. That all said, the writing in the last season of Game of Thrones, in my opinion, started to get a little bit hokey, you know, started to get a little weak, a little weak sauce. You know, the dragon that shows up. I mean, is the dragon a stealth bomber? Because that dragon moves real fast across Westeros. I'm just saying. All right, we're going to have a Freestyle Friday tomorrow from NYC. Very much looking forward to that, team. Until next time, you know what's up. Shields high. Don't you just love it when you find a $100 bill inside of a jacket that you haven't used for ages? It's a great feeling. Imagine finding hundreds of dollars in the papers that are sitting in your filing cabinet, desk, or boxes in your attic. And that old 401k paperwork from the job before last, you know, the one you forgot about? Well, that money is sitting there gathering financial dust when it could be working much harder for you in a precious metals IRA. My friends at Noble Gold can see if you qualify and they will do all the heavy lifting for you, making you thousands and it could cost you nothing. 
Give Noble Gold a call at 877-646-5347 or text my name, Buck, that's B-U-C-K, to 511-511 and receive their free investor's guide. Plus, for all qualified IRAs above $20,000, they'll also include a complimentary rare-graded Morgan silver dollar valued at $150. Go to noblegoldinvestments.com or text Buck to 511-511 today. Remember, individual results may vary. Invest wisely. Standard tax rates may apply.